When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Book Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 265, and we are recording on January 19th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Hello. Hello from my anxiety nest. <laughs> Yay! So tomorrow is Inauguration Day. By the time y'all are hearing this, we will have a new president. I've been singing one day more from like, this all morning, <laughs> everything is fine. But I don't remember any of the words, so it's been very like, one day more. <laughs> mumble, mumble for fish. <laughs> That's it. Those are the words. Do, do, do. France. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, it's good. <sighs> yeah. All right. We got a show. Yeah, let's do a show. Not about the inauguration or musicals. <laughs> Although Les Mis is based on a book, so I guess that's relevant. Um. Anyway, how the show works. As I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. You can email those to us at getbooktobookwrite.com or drop them in the form, which lives at the bottom of the show notes on the site. And of course, these can be reading recommendations for yourself, for a present, for your book club, for whatever. So any of that is fair game. If your question is time sensitive, please put it in the subject line. If you email us, if you use the form, just put it in big letters in the first line. We might email you back if we have already answered your question on the show or if we will not get to it in time. We have a few pieces of feedback today. The first is from Caroline, who says, For the person in today's episode who wanted books about ballet, I can recommend Bunheads by Sophie Flack. She's a former dancer with the New York City Ballet, so it's super accurate, but a lovely read. Wendy says, I have feedback for Sophia, who wanted a book providing insight into the movie studio system. My casting couch was too short by Marion Dowdy is a fascinating memoir about the art of discovering and casting actors and actresses in TV movies. And then Carrie says, I have some recs for Mateo, who is looking for fantasy with interesting roles building that includes religions. She recommends Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse, The Inheritance Trilogy by M.K. Jemison, and or The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie. Oh, I didn't realize that had religious elements. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like, I mean, <laughs> there's like a sentient godly rock involved. So I guess that counts as religion, right? Should, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what What's a religion? What counts as a religion? That's not a thing I can do today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a whole raven cult. There's a lot. There's a lot. All right. We're going to read our first question and then talk about our first sponsor and away we will go. All right. So our first question is from Sarah, who says, my book club has a read your own book format. Each month we choose a theme and everyone chooses their own book to read based on it. For February, we're doing an anti-romance theme, basically books about dysfunctional couples who definitely should not be together. I, this is hysterical. I love this. I love everything about this. So the question continues. The only book I can think of along these lines is Gone Girl. Nick and Amy are the worst. True. Do you have any suggestions for books about dysfunctional relationships? Boy, do we. Uh, but before we get into them, let's hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. 
So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Uh, should I go first, Amanda? Sure. All right, I'll go first. Books about dysfunctional couples that definitely should not be together. So I picked A Separation by Katie Kitamura, which is interesting because... When the book starts, one of the couples in questions has already broken up. Like, they're separated, but nobody knows. And uh, they're, like, trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to tell everybody. But in the meantime, they're living their own separate lives. But then the husband, whose name is Christopher, well, soon-to-be ex-husband, whose name is Christopher, has gone missing in Greece. And the woman has to go and, like, you know, everybody's like, well, you have to go find him because nobody knows that they're separated and that she kind of hates his guts for reasons. <laughs> and so she's like, oh, shoot, I guess I do have to go pretend that I care about this. I mean, I guess I kind of care about this. I don't know. So she goes to Greece and tries to figure out, like, what has happened. And you get this whole, you know, sort of look back at their relationship and how it fell apart. But there's another relationship in the book that is also kind of dysfunctional. And I think this gives really interesting, this whole book is really interesting food for thought around, like, how we get ourselves into dysfunctional relationships, how they get dysfunctional, why we stay. There's so many interesting tidbits in here of emotional 
excavation. And this is one of those books where not that much plot happens. Like, she's just kind of in Greece, finding out how, why he's gone missing, and, like, having random conversations with the people who live there. And so, like, and that's basically the whole book. But it goes so deep into the psychological elements of it, and it feels really tense, even though not that much is happening. So it's a really interesting, and I found it very gripping read uh, that I think will absolutely work for your anti-romance theme. I kind of didn't end up rooting for anybody in this book, except for like you know, people to be people, (laughs) if that makes sense. So again, that's A Separation by Katie Kitamura. All right. I picked Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, uh, which has a similar narrative trick as Gone Girl, where the first half of the book, you're really seeing what's happening through the husband's eyes. And then the second half, you get the wife's perspective. So Lotto and Matilda are the the couple. They meet when they are in their early 20s in college. Lotto is from a, a wealthy Florida family. He's like a golden boy, beloved by everyone, very popular. Um, and then Matilda is this like tall, glamorous poor, beautiful girl. And they fall in love, they get married, and Lotto turns out to be, you know, over the course of his career, becomes a very famous playwright. And Matilda is kind of behind the scenes helping him, you know, you know, like manage his home and manage his, the business side and all of this. And Lotto, who in my head looks like Brad Pitt, I don't know, <laughs> but that like deteriorates as he ages. That's kind of what's happening here, you know. Um, it's like Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow is who I cast in the movie version of this in my brain. And so, yeah, anyway, so the for the first half you're with Lotto, it's he's like experiencing his beautiful wife and experiencing career frustration and then oncoming fame and dealing with fame and like having undergrads constantly throwing themselves at you. Oh, what a chore, you know, um, <laughs> and dealing with the ever growing burden of my genius kind of a thing. And you're like, whatever, you know, um, he seems insufferable, but she seems to be like really in love with him. Fine. And then you get to the second part of the book, which is Matilda's point of view. And oh my God, does she hate her husband? (laughs) Like from the jump. It is amazing. The difference in their perspective on the same events is so mind-blowing. And Lauren Groff is a master. So of course, Matilda's perspective on her husband's burgeoning genius and like the way he takes himself so seriously and all of this is just complete crap. She's writing most of his plays and he's not even realizing that that's what's happening because she wants him to make money. Like she wants the life that they have and she's just kind of using him as this puppet to make it happen. It's amazing. And like the ways in which it felt a lot like Gone Girl and like there, this woman is manipulating this idiotic dude into doing exactly what she wants him to do so she can have the life that she wants because she can't have it without a man. And like that is the statement that is being made here. I talk about dysfunctional marriages, right? Like I just could not, I could not put this book down. Everyone in it is awful. Also, I love Matilda in the same way that like everyone in Gone Girl is awful, but I think Amy Dunn is kind of amazing and like maybe a super genius. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. So that's Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. All right. Question two is from Hannah who says, I dipped my toe into capital R adult romance in 2020 for the first time, and it wasn't great, mainly because I deeply hate grand public gestures and declarations of love. And also, I'm not a fan of either the third act breakup or the this could be resolved in a five minute conversation miscommunications. So I'm looking for books that don't contain any of the any of the above. Any subgenre is fine. I like steamy kissing, but not too much explicit sex. I'm not super keen on enemies to lovers, but it's not a hard no. And if I could have an easily accessible audiobook, that would be great. I'm very new to romance. They're super mainstream. Things are probably fine. I've read Christina Lauren, Alyssa Cole, and Tessa Dare. All right, Jen, what you got? 
So I picked 40 Love by Olivia Dade for you. That you, you know, it is a lot of specifics that you have. And I will tell you that it is very hard to find a romance that doesn't have a third act breakup. It's like kind of a staple of the genre, but it doesn't, there's different ways to do a third act breakup. And I think the way that it happens in 40 Love will not be, hopefully not be off-putting to you. And I really enjoyed this. So this is about Tess and Lucas. Tess is a teacher, like a very dedicated teacher who is on, and like she and her best friend have saved up for this like island, you know, resort vacation. And she's trying to like have fun and relax, but mostly she's just obsessing about work because she's trying to get this next level position and she's got all these plans to how to make her school better and amazing, but she also knows that like she's going to struggle to get this job and so she has to make her proposal the best it can possibly be and blah 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 and her friend is like, "Oh my god, go outside." <laughs> And then Lucas is the tennis pro at the club. He is a former tennis pro who has had to retire due to injuries and is just kind of drifting. And he's not really like, he's not a rake. He's not a playboy. He's actually a very lovely guy who just sort of doesn't know what to do with himself because the thing that he trained at forever and loved and was so good at has now been taken from him by his physical limitations. He just can't compete at the same level anymore. And he doesn't know what to do with himself. And they, there's like a very hilarious meet cute because she is out in the ocean in the early morning and like gets knocked over by a wave and loses her bikini top <laughs> and like has to hide behind him because there are children on the beach. <laughs> and it's like a whole situation. It's very funny. And their relationship, the way that it goes, I think is really well done because there are all kinds of differences between them. She's older than him. You know, she doesn't really believe that like, like she believes that they might have an attraction, but she's not sure that she believes anything more can come of this given their respective life situations. And he like sort of doesn't 100% know how to adult in a relationship yet. Like he wants to, but he has not done this. So uh, for all kinds of reasons. So there are legit obstacles between them, but they also have very frank conversations and when they have misunderstandings it doesn't take that long before one of them is like wait I think you have misunderstood what I am telling you which is like so refreshing to see on the page because so often it's true so many romance novels it's like they never have those conversations until like three chapters later and you're like oh my god just talk to each other so they do have grown-up conversations about their feelings regularly which is super refreshing and I love the way this resolved and there are no like huge declarations of love uh, in front of public, you know, situate like I don't I don't love that either. And there is none of that in here. One note I will make for content warnings is that there's mention of fat phobia. The main character is like very proud of her body, but she is, you know, not a size zero. And her friend has to like deal with some of this stuff. Um, Olivia, her, excuse me, Tess herself does not. But it's it's in, it's in there a little bit. Uh, so, again, that's 40 Love by Olivia Deed. Okay, I picked Off Base by Annabeth Albert, which is the first in a series of military, of gay military romances that all have amazing titles, like At Attention, <laughs> Tight Quarters. <laughs> I love it so much. Okay, so I will give a trigger warning for this for homophobia, and it's like on the page part of the plot, homophobia. So 
putting that out there. So this is about Zach and Pike. And Zach is a Navy SEAL who is in the service as of, you know, in the book. Um, and he is living off base, off base, hence the title. He's leaving the barracks to live in a fixer upper rental that his CO, his commanding officer owns as like a favor to him. So he's going to fix it up. The problem is he doesn't actually know how to do anything handyman-ish. <laughs> like he doesn't know how to do any of that. The only reason he accepted it is because another member of his SEAL team is harassing him for sus- because he suspects that he's gay, which he is. And he wants to not be in the barracks with him anymore. And his CO can kind of sense that like something is off in, in his unit, but can't figure out what it is. So he's like, well, why don't you just go whatever? You know, like he's obviously doing him a favor. But again, Zach does not know anything about home repair. So he's like, well, now I live here. And what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I supposed to fix this place up for this guy? So he um, accepts an, a roommate as an acquaintance named Pike, who is a real estate agent and and like does know how to repair houses, Has does, the, does this for a living. Pike and Zach are not enemies. Like I know you said you don't like enemies to lovers. They're not enemies, but they don't. They're not like best friends either. Pike is openly gay and Zach kind of resents that freedom that he has in his life because Zach doesn't feel like he can have that. Um, So he like kind of feels like ignoring Pike most of the time. And Pike finds it hilarious. Like he knows that this is a gay dude. Like he knows it, you know, and so he likes to tease him. It's just a really funny push-pull dynamic that they have. And then they move into the same house together. And I bet you're wondering what happens next. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of construction. What are you thinking? Don't be so dirty. No, it's a lot of construction. And also many feelings are had. And and they're like pretty open feelings. But Zach is really struggling with what's going to happen to his career if he comes out. Because, you know, coming out in the military is not necessarily the same thing as coming out if you have a different kind of job. He's also like scared for his safety. And he comes from a really conservative evangelical family who I think is from Oklahoma in the book. And what are they going to think? And it's this whole thing. And Pike is like, I've done this before. Like I've been with men before who were not ready for this. And I deserve somebody who's willing to have like a, a out in the world relationship with me, which of course is totally fair. And so that's like the main conflict in the book. There are moments where Zach isn't, won't talk to him, won't talk to Pike about it. But I don't think that falls into like, if you just had a five minute conversation, this would be fine because this is not a five minute conversation, right? Like this is mm. a, an intense thing that you're asking somebody do, to do for you, um, even if they want to do it, considering his circumstances or any in any circumstances. But it's a romance, so I'm sure you can guess how it ends. And there's some really, really lovely supporting characters in the military who come to like his defense and come to offer him support. The jerks in his unit get get like what's coming to them. It's very satisfying in a lot of ways. If you get my meaning, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. So that is Off Base by Annabeth Albert. All right. Our next question is from Radhika. The question says, I'd like to read a cozy mystery novel with a sizable cast of interesting, well-developed characters. I'm thinking something like The Orient Express or Murder on the Nile. Nothing too heavy and no sexual violence slash domestic abuse, please. There can be some violence, a la murder weapons being wielded, but preferably in the background and not graphic. I would just keep talking. I just want to shout out quickly Death at Breakfast, which I recommended last time by Beth Gutchin, because it absolutely, I mean, it's contemporary, but it absolutely has most of the things that you are looking for. And I gave content warnings for that last week. But I have another one for you. It's Proper English by K.J. Charles. And this was really fun. This is both, I will say this is both a romance and a cozy mystery, murder mystery. And I loved the way that both of them are really forward. Like sometimes you have something that's like more of a romance than a murder mystery. And sometimes you have the other. And this like is very nicely balanced to me. 
And this takes place at a remote country house, the Earl of Witten's country house. Yes. And it's a shooting party. Yes. It's it's like so classic. It's great. Um, and the main character, one of the main characters, Patricia Merton, is the sister of like the friend of the son of the Earl. It's like a whole, you know, family situation. And she is like the all England ladies champion shooter and is very... You know, I guess you would call her a tomboy. Like, she likes to, you know, go hunting. She's a very good shot. I mean, she's like a champion shooter. Um, she's not interested in settling down into a marriage, but her older brother has recently married and she's been managing the household, but now that's his wife's job. So she's kind of like, uh, do I become like a lady's companion? What do I do with myself? Mm. And so this shooting party is a nice opportunity for her to like leave the house, get out from, you know, being the third wheel. And maybe try to get some ideas about what she wants to do next. But when she gets there, the shooting party is supposed to be just like four people she knows really well, herself and three other men. And it's going to be very chill and fun. That is not what happens. <laughs> Lots of people invite themselves. And all of them are at loggerheads. And she is like, what is going on? Like, why is this guy being so awful? Why is everybody letting him be awful? Why are these two like being weird around each other? Like, what the hell is going on with these people? And then somebody gets murdered and they have to figure out who done it. Because now they are literally cut off from the rest of civilization because of a storm that has been flooding. So they're all stuck in the house. Somebody's a murderer. We don't know who, et cetera, et cetera. It is delightful. And I love the variety of people in this book. Like there are so many different character types and you do get to know them through Pat's perspective in really fun and interesting and like nuanced ways. And I just, I, I like, I devoured this. So I think you will enjoy it as well. So again, that is Proper English by KJ Charles. Uh, I will give two content warnings for homophobia and racism. And the main pairing is female-female. So yeah, go with God. <laughs> All right. My pick is Murder at the Grand Raj Palace by, by Vasim Khan. And this is the fourth book in the Baby Ganesh Agency investigation series, but it's set up, in my opinion, very similar to like the Poirot series from Agatha Christie. Like you can pick them up out of order. There's plenty. This is the only one of the series that I've read. And I got all the backstory, you know, about the characters and everything I need to know is included. So it's fine. So this is um, about... A man named Inspector Chopra who lives in Mumbai and is a retired police agent. Police agents. Good Lord. A retired police officer. Um, he had like some heart trouble and had to was forced into very early retirement and has set up his own private detective agency on the side with his sidekick, Ganesha, or Ganesh, who is a one-year-old elephant who just accompanies him everywhere and like helps. <laughs> like Ganesha has... Uh, what what like instincts about people and communicates with his trunk a lot and it seems very strange but like it's so cute and perfect and amazing on the page i love this little elephant i want an elephant now i don't know i really need to not get an elephant there's like a little fight between an <laughs> elephant and a monkey in the book anyway um so as the title implies, this takes place at the Grand Raj Palace Hotel, which is this like the most elite and beautiful and fancy hotel in Mumbai. Uh, royalty stays there, fancy, fancy movie stars stay there, and an American billionaire who has just purchased India's most expensive painting ever is found dead in like the penthouse. His name is Hollis Burbank because isn't that the most like billionaire name ever? Hollis Burbank. It really is. Um, so he's found dead. The police decide that it's a suicide uh, because let's just move this along. The 
hotel doesn't want a scandal. They're about to have a giant royal wedding in the hotel. And so like a dead, murdered billionaire is like not a good look. So they decide that it's a suicide. But the uh, one of the assistants on the case is like, this really doesn't feel like that's what happened here. So he calls his friend Inspector Chopra to come take a look and figure out if it actually was suicide or if he was murdered. And so Chopra shows up and, you know, goes on the hunt and finds like an entire hotel full of people who wanted to kill this dude. Like, nobody likes a billionaire, right? But nobody in this hotel like this specific billionaire. Everybody's a suspect. Everybody he meets on the elevator is like, oh, yeah, no, that guy got what was coming. Like, everybody. And so he's got to investigate all of these people. They're not trapped. Like, there's no natural disaster or reason why they can't leave or whatever, um, except that the investigation is ongoing. But it is, it has that kind of locked room feeling of all of these people, big cast of suspects in one place. It's very opulent in that Agatha Christie kind of way where like, why does everybody die in these manor houses? Nobody dies in like a ditch. (laughs) Everybody dies in these fancy houses. So it's got that kind of feeling. And yeah, very interesting big cast. So that's Murder at the Grand Raj Palace by Vasim Khan. All right. Our next question is from Josh, who says, I was unemployed for all of 2020, which forced me to examine my relationship to work and how I tie my self-worth to productivity. I'm interested in reading books about how to untie this relationship, about ending toxic productivity obsessions, or about upending or breaking capitalistic ideas about work being inherently good, etc. Normally, I'm a fiction reader, but this feels like nonfiction territory to me. Okay, Jen, what you got? Oh, Josh, (laughs) we feel you. Mm. I mean, we have been lucky to have our jobs, but uh, we are also trying to unpack a lot of these things, I think. Mm -hmm. Lots of folks are. And uh, I'm going to recommend Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson, which I know Amanda talked about last time. We are absolutely going to max this out very quickly this year because this book is so good on this subject. Mm -hmm. It is very specifically about, I mean, you don't say how old you are, but I think even if you're not a millennial, this book is useful. It is about uh, burnout in millennials as its starting point, but it very much gets into the history of the United States workplace. And how we got to this point where burnout is like not only sort of endemic, but is expected, is, you know, almost made uh, mandatory in various jobs. And how we have so anchored ourselves to this idea that we are what we do for a living and that if we don't have a cool enough job or work hard enough at our jobs, like we're not worthwhile human beings, which is garbage. So I found this really helpful, even though, again, it does focus very much on the millennial generation as well as the middle class. Like this is very much a book about the middle class in America. But there's such good information in here about, like I said, the the history of how we got here and like all of the different ways in which the system is supporting this. It's not just you. Like, it's not just like, oh, if I could just, you know, fix my brain, like if I go to enough therapy and do enough self-help, like I can stop being burnt out. Like, no, it's Mm. built into the system. More things. This is not a problem that we solve on a personal level. This is a problem that we need to solve on a systemic level. And like, here are all of the different things that feed into this, which I find very helpful. And like also infuriating because it's very like, I want it to be a personal problem, but it's not. But that's also important to know when you're dealing with this. So I think you will find it very useful. And again, that is Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson. All right. I picked How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which I just talked about when Jeff was a guest on the show a couple weeks ago. But it's a new year. So I got three more slots. (laughs) So don't at me. 
But I really do think that this is perfect for what you're asking about. I mean, How to Do Nothing is purposefully titled to sound like a self-help book about how to like put down your phone or whatever. But then you pick it up and it's actually an entire treatise about how the capitalist narrative about your worth being derived from productivity is crap and uh, something that we need to hold tech companies accountable for, as opposed to constantly asking ourselves what we're doing wrong in relation to technology and work and capitalism. You're not doing anything wrong. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing because the system is designed to make you do it and feel that way. So how to not do that (laughs) is what this book is about, like how to direct your attention to things other than constant productivity, things like art, making and consuming art, to things like your local, you know, nature, um, what am I trying to say, biodiversity, um, environmental issues that are going on around you, like things that are actually worth our time and energy as opposed to constantly trying to work and constantly trying to tie our self-worth to our work. So when we find ourselves out of work for whatever reason, whether it be a, you know, global pandemic that we had no government support through or any other situation, we don't feel like we have suddenly lost our identities through, you know, a system that we didn't build collapsing around us. That was kind of a rant built into that little summary. <laughs> we we both have a little soapbox about this. And can you tell? <laughs> we got a lot of feelings. We got a lot of feelings about this. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's How to Do Nothing. The subtitle is Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny Odell. And that is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. 
All right. Our next question is from Maggie, who says, My dad reads mostly nonfiction history and political books. Recently, I found him browsing the sci-fi section of our local bookstore. I asked him if he thinks he'd enjoy reading more fiction. His response was that growing up, he read a ton of science fiction, but now all of the authors he enjoyed are dead. Morbid, right? Anyways, I don't think he really knows where to start. He's read all the classics. I was hoping to give him a great sci-fi anthology that will appeal to his love of these classics, but also help him discover contemporary authors he might enjoy. Ideally, the collection would be made up of multiple contemporary authors who have full-length novels or series that he could explore after. Amanda, why don't you go first? Because I did like a thing here. Okay. Um, I picked A People's Future of the United States, which is an anthology edited by Victor Laval. And it's stories of imagining exactly what the title implies, the future of the United States. And there, the thing that the reason why I picked this is because it's a combination of stories that are both critical, you would say, like dystopic or warnings, uh, you know, looking at our trajectory that we're on right now in different areas like corporate oversight of various things, technological surveillance, stuff like that, and where we will end up if those things are allowed to grow or continue unchecked. But there are also stories that are imagining a country that is built on a more just and equitable uh, way of doing things. So there's both like warning stories and, and kind of utopic stories that are really nice to read. And I picked this because you mentioned that your father really liked Dune and the Foundation series. And Herbert and Asimov, I think, were both writing about what makes a society good, which I think is what most science fiction is about. Like, how do we get to a good society? How do we even start to think about what that looks like? And what are the ways in which we really, really, really need to not do that? Because that's going to get us in a, you know, take us down a bad path. And so much of science fiction is about that. Um, and so I think that he will find a lot of comfort in these in this collection that will ring a lot of bells for anyone who is really familiar with the Dune series, especially if you've read all of them when there's like all of those utopian experiments later in the series. And, you know, Asimov is constantly considering the effects of technology on our society and how we interact with each other. There are big names and lesser known people in this uh, collection. So he'll find any number of people to pursue later who have all written like novels. Like Charlie Jane Andrews is in here. Uh, Maria Devana Headley, Victor Laval, of course, who is the editor, Gabby Rivera, a bunch, a bunch of really familiar, Charles Yu, a bunch of really familiar people. So that is a people Future of the United States, edited by Victor Laval. Okay, so I did not deliver the thing you asked for, but I still think <laughs> I have answered the question. So I went down this rabbit hole of thinking about what of the contemporary sci-fi I've read feels like classic sci-fi, but isn't, uh, in that it is not written by dead white men. And I, there are, and Amanda had already picked this anthology, so I knew you were going to get that. So I am actually giving you a novel that I think your dad will love because I think it both in style and content has a lot in common with classic sci-fi, but it is a contemporary book by a Chinese author and it is... Oh, it's one of my favorite sci-fi, like hard sci-fi books that I've read in the last couple of years. It's Vagabonds by Hao Jing Fang, translated by Ken Liu. And this book is so interesting. It takes place in the future. It has been 100 years since the like falling out between Mars and Earth. Mars has been colonized. And obviously, originally, it was like, you know, part of the Earth government system. But then they decided that they no longer wanted to be, you know, ruled by Earth. And so there Relatable. was a war. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, same. Um, 
So there was a war, and it's been very strained in these hundred years. There's a lot of, like, very overblown propaganda and rhetoric about, like, why Earth is the worst, why Mars is the worst, et cetera, et cetera. But there are, you know, people also trying to bridge this and, you know, make peace between the two planets. And so to celebrate sort of this centennial, a group of 18-year-olds, teenagers, I think they're 16 when they go, um, are sent to Earth from Mars as like, you know, sort of like delegates, like a, a gesture of goodwill. And they are on Earth for three years. And the book picks up when they're coming home to Mars. And you start with these teenagers on this ship, like headed back to home. And a lot of them have very conflicted feelings, like some of them really enjoyed their time on Earth. Some of them are like, cannot wait to get off and get back to the civilization they know, because the way the government works is very different. Um, the way everything works is very different between the places that they've been. And then as the book unfolds, you see sort of this political tension and like what the different forces at work are and what these complicated negotiations are going to be. And also, like like Amanda was saying, like, how do you make a good society? What yeah. makes a good government? These are all really big, interesting questions that are explored through the characters in this book. And you get a bunch of different characters. You get some of the politicians. You get some of the teenagers. You get, like, you know, other players. There's a filmmaker. It's just fascinating. And it does, like, stylistically, I think, it does have a lot in common with this, the way that um, classic sci-fi was written. But it's so smart and interesting and thinky and compelling. And I just loved it so much. Uh, and I really feel like your dad would dig it. So again, that's Vagabonds by Hao Jing Fang, translated by Ken Liu, who also is amazing, for the record. <laughs> All right. Our next question is from Quinn, who says, I'm looking for a young adult book that has a lot of high adventure, epic questing type stuff, but with no pining. I'm so sick of pining and just romance in general and YA novels or series, and I haven't been able to find anything with none to really, really, really minimal amounts of it. Some books in the genre that I enjoyed, but that have too much pining in them are Children of Blood and Bone, The Hazelwood, and Aurora Burning, and The Hobbit. I enjoy books with really rich language, and some authors I like are Rashani Chakshi and Catherine Valenti. Okay, I had to ask for help with this one. <laughs> like, I can, I can find YA novels with no romance, but no pining is a little different because, like, you can pine and it, nothing can come of it, right? There are books like that. Right. But this was, right. this was tough. So I asked the contributors, and our contributor, Nicole, recommended Forest of Souls by Lori M. Lee. And she says, main characters are best friends. There's no romance and no pining. The most that happens is a lot of worrying about each other, <laughs> which sounds great. So Forest of Souls is a kind of classic hobbity-ish, medieval-ish kind of YA um, fantasy novel, but it's based very loosely on Hmong shamanism, the Hmong being an indigenous group from China. And so the main character's name is uh, Sersha, and she ha is training to become a royal spy for the queen. Her best friend is Sango, and they are on like a mission for the queen, and they're attacked by shamans, and her best friend is killed. Sango is killed. And Sersha kind of like accidentally brings her back to life. Whoops-a-daisy. Didn't know I could do that. And so it turns out, as evidenced by the fact that she can bring somebody back to life, that she is a soul guide and the first one in living memory. The soul, soul guides being people who can, um, you know, kind of necromancers almost, people who can bring the dead back or send people to death if you so fancy. And so she is summoned to uh, a forest where the Spider King lives. He lives in something called the Dead Wood, which is a forest possessed by souls. 
that is usually established to keep peace, but like it's growing out of hand. And so she's also a person who can manipulate souls. And the only one that anyone can remember, you know, it's kind of up to her to like save the world. So very, what's, uh, what is that spider's name in Lord of the Rings? Shelob. Yes, very Shelob vibes, right? Like big Shelob energy. <laughs> <laughs> There's our show title. <laughs> um, but her her best friend is with her um, the whole time. And there's, again, like Nicole said, a lot of worrying about each other, but there's no pining. There's no romance. It's just a lot of, it's Sam, it's Sam and, and Frodo on an adventure to go see Shelob, except one of them can like bring people back from the dead. And it's just a lot of fun, like lots of epic questing right up your alley. So that's Forest of Souls by Laurie M. Lee. Yeah, I'll co-sign that, Rec. I really enjoyed that book. Okay, mine is Each of Us a Desert by Mark Oshiro, which uh, I'm just going to say at the top, so I don't forget, has content warnings for abusive parents and graphic violence. This is this is absolutely like an adultish, like a, like a mature YA is the, the word I'm looking for. High adventure, epic questing. Absolutely. There is actually a romance, but I don't, when I was thinking back about it, I was like, I don't feel like there was a lot of pining. And you didn't say you didn't want romance. You just said you didn't want pining. So I feel like this works. I don't know. We'll see what you think. But I loved this book. It is um, inspired very specifically sort of by the Mojave Desert. And like, you know, sort of the deserty areas of California that Oshiro themselves are very familiar with. And um, the main character, Zoe, is a Quintista is what it's called in the book. She has this power to like take other people's worst secrets and purge them from that person, take them into herself. And then she's supposed to return them to the desert, um, to the sun, which is, you know, sort of a deity in this book. And if she doesn't do that thing, then these secrets could take embodied form and like become monsters, basically. And so it's obviously a very important um, and weighty job because she is literally, you know, absorbing the worst of other people into herself and then, you know, you know, transmuting it, basically. Um, it's a very heavy deal for a teenage for anyone, especially for a teenager. And then the other character, Amelia, is sort of the enemy of Zoe because she is the daughter of this marauder bandit jerk guy mm. who comes into Zoe's village and takes over the water supply, which desert, like, very key, and is terrorizing everyone. And through a series of, you know, events... Zoe finds herself leaving her village to strike out on her own to try to figure out the truth about a lot of things that she thought she knew but sudden ha- some suddenly have been thrown into question. And it is so epic. In sc- I mean, it is a huge world that Oshiro has built here. And the way that Zoe moves through it and the way that you learn about the different like elements of the world building, oh, it's so good. It's so juicy. Uh, it's really intense. And I do think that like while Zoe and Amelia both have like so many things that they're struggling with uh, and like really big feelings. I don't remember feeling like there was any pining. That's like a feeling I don't recall from this book, but there are a lot of big feelings in it. And I just loved it. So anyway, again, that's Each of Us a Desert by Mark Oshiro. All right. And oh, we're on our last question. How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) What is time? What is time? Our last question is from Hash, who asks for classics with a bright storyline. Something like Pride and Prejudice. P.S. I am a Downton Abbey fan, too. Amanda, what are you recommending? 
I just cracked my knuckles for this one. I love, <laughs> I love classics with the brights. What a great way to phrase that question. Yeah, bright storyline is a great phrase. Right. Yeah. Okay, I picked Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Elizabeth Gaskell is not, I think, as well known as she should be um, among like Victorian English. Victorian English, that's redundant. Among Victorian writers. She is more radical than Jane Austen, but not as radical as George Eliot, if you're looking for like a how, I don't know, angsty are these books going to be? So Wives and Daughters is big. It's about 700 pages. And she didn't finish it. So it was probably going to be longer. But it's uh, set in an English like country little village in the 1830s. And you spend the entire book with Molly, who, when the book opens, is 12. Her, her father is a widower and is raising Molly on his own. And they have a lovely relationship. And he eventually, he remarries as she gets a little bit older. I think she's in her early teens when he remarries because he starts to feel like, for various reasons, that Molly needs a mother figure in her life. So he, like, finds one and just marries her. Turns out to be a big mistake. She's a horrible person. And then Molly just has to, like, deal with this dingbat for her entire life and her stepmother brings her her daughter from her first marriage into the house so molly has now a stepsister who is fine and lovely and great and very pretty and lively and vivacious and like the life of the party everywhere they go molly herself is a little bit shyer more reserved and it's just their family drama like it's 600 pages of english family drama and like romance drama and who in the village sold the goat to who. And, you know, it's just got that, like, kind of Jane Austen domestic thing going on. Uh, but in the same way that Jen o- Jane Austen's domestic stories are hiding a lot of political commentary, that's what's going on here. But it's not really as hidden as it is in, in Austen's novels often. This is a, really a novel about how English society at the time that Gaskell was writing was based entirely on the moral judgment of men and how that ruined the country (laughs) but on like a little village scale because the men mainly her dad who is very well-meaning and lovely making decisions for all these women in his house ruins everything constantly and like then these women have to go behind him and clean it up whether it's like the dresses that they're wearing or just these choices that he makes about who they can associate with what they can read which at that time you know was a perfectly normal thing there's a little bit of class drama there the main character does have a romantic drama i'm keep saying the word drama because that's what it is and i mentioned earlier that gaskell didn't finish the book because she died it was being published in a serial and she died right before the last bit was about to come out but you can tell where it's going and if you watch the bbc miniseries which is absolutely worth it it finishes the story um and at the end it's all of the romantic storylines being wrapped up so it's very satisfying and like cute and you know bright it's just really bright i love small english village domestic dramas like i love them i love them i would read them until i died i would watch them on the bbc forever even if it was just the same cast being rotated through 15 million different you know uh, roles which really is exactly how the bbc operates but it's so (laughs) great it's so great so that's wives and daughters by elizabeth gaskell so i have one for you from my tbr it's on spec but it seems like it might be a good fit for you uh it's miss Pettigrew lives for a day by winifred watson and this from what i am understanding is more of like like a little bit like racier than like (laughs) Austin. The plot is about a middle-aged governess named Miss Pettigrew, who is like used to dealing with, you know, households full of misbehaving children and whatnot. And then her employment agency sends her out to a new job, but she gets sent to the wrong address and ends up being employed by a nightclub singer. 
And like over the course of this one day where the nightclub singer is like, ah, I don't have any children. However, come work for me because I could use some assistance in my, you know, glamorous, debauched life. Uh, Miss Pettigrew like gets to, you know, be party to that lifestyle, which sounds really fun and enjoyable. And the reviews have are very much about like, how delightful and escapist uh, this book is, which sounds like, you know, some of what you're looking for. It's, it's definitely more comic, more like more uh, Jane Austen is very snarky and mm. like sarcastic. And this is more deliberately comedic. I did see a lot of mentions of the casual racism and misogyny in the book, which is not, you know, a huge surprise for something written in, I want to say, like the 1930s, but is definitely worth noting. Uh, But again, that's Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day by Winifred Watson. And that's our show. Huzzah. Huzzah. Jazz hands. Yeah. Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a rating or and or whatever, a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where is Jen? I am also mostly on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you all next week. 